Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff, and I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey. Hey, guys. Hey, you guys. We're back with new episodes. 2021. New year, new episodes. Evan, who is, uh, who's on the show this week? This week, I talked to Ken Rosen. Uh, you may know him from his byline, which is Kenneth R. Rosen. He is a former staffer for the New York Times. Uh, he's also written for a lot of magazines. He wrote for the Atavist magazine back when I was the editor-in-chief of that. He reported from Iraq. He's also written for Wired from uh, the... Iraq Syria border, as well as uh, from Lebanon and other places in the Middle East. He's actually based in Italy, which is where I was uh, speaking to him. And he has a book out, I believe this week, that's called Troubled, which is about the uh, network of uh, sort of behavior modification programs, uh, like wilderness programs and reform type schools for quote unquote troubled teens, of which Ken uh, was designated a troubled teen. So it's a bit about his background. It's about that industry and it's about kids who have gone through it. And uh, it's a great book. And I really enjoyed talking to him about his own past uh, intermingled with how he's sort of reported this all out. This is the thing where they like come in the middle of the night and take you away. Yeah, indeed. For some of the schools, they will send people to essentially kidnap the kids in the middle of the night and, and take them away because their parents are sort of at the end of their rope in terms of what they uh, think they can do with them. So that, in fact, happened to Ken, and we talk about that uh, in the show as well. Man, that is uh, that is so intense. Our sponsor this week, as always, is MailChimp. MailChimp makes this show possible in 2021. Maybe this is the year for you to become a newsletter person. Do it with MailChimp. They make it easy. Thanks to them. And now here's Evan with Ken Rosen. Ken, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me, Evan. I appreciate it. Um, I don't think we've met in person before, although I can no longer remember who I have and haven't met in person after one year of the pandemic, but we never met in person before. Is that correct? No, but we've circled the same <laughs> spheres, I think for a while and traded emails. We have traded emails. I, so I remember when I was working at the Atavis magazine, you sent me a pitch some years ago and it was about the Savannah college of art and design, which you SCAD, which you attended. And I think I pegged you as like, oh, he must be a designer or he writes about design. And then I don't know how long it was later, but maybe six months later or a year, I got a pitch from you that was about Mosul, going to Mosul in Iraq <laughs> and writing about how ISIS, the ISIS dead are disposed of. And I, it, it really shocked me. I was like, what is this guy doing? Like this guy writes about design and now all of a sudden he's going to Iraq. Like I had to go back and read your clips and determine that in fact you had done other reporting and you worked for the New York times. So I apologize for uh, at first not taking you seriously, but in fact we did do the story. So uh, it all worked out. 
And thank you for being the first editor to apologize for not responding to an email. I think that's probably <laughs> the first time that's ever happened to anyone. <laughs> But um, that's all to say that we have worked together before, although not directly. I didn't edit the story. And it was a fantastic story. And I was proud to have published it. And I think I didn't know much about your background or sort of where you came from at the time. And now you have this book out in which you've very much sort of braided some of your experience growing up into the book. And so I wanted to kind of start with that experience and a bit of what that's like to write about yourself in that way. But why don't you, let's first talk about what the book is about. How would you describe the sort of industry that's covered in the book? Troubled is a book about the tough love, behavior modification, troubled teen industry, and looks at four clients or survivors who went through these programs, different types of programs, uh, wilderness, residential, and uh, boarding school type programs, and what became of them after their years of this treatment, which consisted of non-evidence-based therapy that had been around for decades. Um, the thing about the troubled teen industry is that it had been investigated and proven to have been home to many deaths associated with this type of treatment of young people between the ages of I don't know, sometimes 10 and, and, and 17. And yet it continued to proliferate into the 2000s, the early aughts. And um, by the time that it had grown out of control into this multi-billion dollar industry, there was very little regulation and exists none today. The hook of the book is that I was one of those teens. When I was 16, my parents had me taken in the middle of the night by two men that they hired for that express purpose and sent to a wilderness program in upstate New York. So as a reporter and also as a writer and, and sort of a, um, a kid who went through these programs, I then many years later um, in my late 20s decided to reach out to many of the kids that I had known at that time to learn what happened to them. And uh, what I found disturbed me greatly and ended up becoming the book Troubled, which is now, uh, now finished. And the book sort of opens with this moment of you being essentially, I mean, kidnapped in the middle of the night out of your bed and sent off to the, one of these schools or programs, uh, whatever you want to call them. Can you tell me a little bit about what led up to that moment? Like what kind of kid were you that sort of culminated in your parents making that decision? I was going through a troubled streak, um, a little rebellious streak. I had left a military academy where I spent 7th and 8th grade and had transitioned during a divorce to a public high school in New Jersey and absolutely did an about-face and just went about doing whatever I wanted. I never went to school. People ask me if I went to high school and I now say no. I was enrolled, but I never went. I was casually using drugs. I was taking my mother's car out. I was fighting back any authority figure that approached me. My mother, who I was living with during the divorce, would call the, the cops on me to escort me to school. Uh, it was like illegal to be truant uh, from my high school, uh, or at least uh -huh. in New Jersey. And, uh, and I was just a rebellious kid, and I was causing a lot of problems at home. And then they you know, eventually decided that they were fed up. They, they had tried individual therapy, which I went to, but it didn't take, I guess. I, I was admitted to an inpatient program for five days but our insurance couldn't cover it, so I was kicked out. And they were turning left and right and couldn't find a way out. And then they learned about these programs. And um, as you noted, I was kidnapped, more or less. And when that happened, did you think, well, of course, this was all going to end at this moment? You know, it's a lot of what you described, it's extreme form of teenage rebellion. But in your mind, was this, oh, okay, now this is what I've brought on myself? Or some sort of ultimate kind of betrayal of trust by your parents. The first piece I wrote about this, I, I mentioned that I really felt as soon as I understood what was happening, vaguely understood, there's no really real way of understanding what kidnapping is like um, or why it's happening at the moment. But I did feel like my time was up that, you know, I had gotten away with so much. I had um, hurt so few people. The whole concern was that eventually something really bad would happen, and I hadn't hurt anyone other than myself or my opportunities. So this felt like, okay, I had breached into a new era of youth, thanks in part to my parents. Did I deserve it? Maybe. 
did they decide? Yes, they made the decision and that's how it was going to be. And I, I keenly remember texting a girl I was interested in at the time the night before saying, you know, I'm going to change. I'm going to come to math class tomorrow and I'm going to really buckle down on my studies and, and I'm not going to not show up anymore because she had echoed similar sentiments of my parents of not, you know, coming to school and how bad it was. And then, of course, 2 a.m., there these two men are. And so you've had this experience and you proceed through programs and you went through th- Three different programs, is that right? That's right. Is it the same three programs that are in the book? Did you go to those specific ones? I went to the first two, and I knew okay. the clients from those programs, those two specific ones who ended up being the characters in the book. And then the last one is very similar to one I went in Utah. Uh-huh. So the book opens, it's almost like the prologue, you're getting kidnapped. And and it could just be a straight memoir. Like It could be your experience in these schools. So I'm interested in the decision And your experience is sort of, as I said, it's like braided into the book uh, in a very elegant way. But why did you decide to not write the straight memoir? Why did you decide to go report the book out with these characters? There's Hazel, Avery, Mike, and then Mike and Mark, who are brothers. My first two years at the Times, I spent writing every morning a memoir and finished 80,000 words of a draft of a memoir and gave it to my agent. And we worked on it for a little bit. And it just wasn't working out. It felt disingenuous. It felt disconnected. It felt sort of all over the place, which uh, for me was the first time writing at such length. I mean, the most I had written was maybe 5,000 words at a time, 10,000 words. And this was just enormous. And I really couldn't figure out what I was trying to say. And that was coming through in the manuscript. I went to the master's program, the MFA program at Columbia University and met a professor there, Michael Shapiro, who became a de facto sort of influence on me. And we were sitting in his office one day talking about this crap manuscript that I had written. And he said, you know, you really need to turn the lens outward. I think the only way you're going to tackle this is if you focus on other people and how they've dealt with the situation and how they've managed to come through in their life and so on and so forth. And I really took that to heart. And it's in part affected why I ended up going to Iraq and why I've continued covering the Middle East is turning that lens outward was more beneficial to me as a person, my emotional growth and my um, development as a human being than it was to focus solely on these interiority complexes that I was struggling with. And now, by virtue of turning that lens outward, I have tackled a lot of those programs. And I did that with this book. You know, I immediately flew out to meet all of these people from these programs that I had known and said, what happened to you? Tell me what happened to you. And it was very cathartic for them, but I can't even explain how cathartic it was for me uh, speaking with them and hearing their stories and then knowing that I wasn't alone. It was uh, phenomenal. And how did you end up sort of settling on these particular people? Because it struck me that in the same way, like if you wrote a memoir, you ended up like you came through the programs and you ended up working at the Times and you're a successful journalist. And like that could be one type of story, like these programs work like look at me. And then depending on which character sources, uh, subjects you pick, it's a very complex story of the type of abuse that occurs at these programs. And how did you decide who you were going to choose to sort of portray the different flavors of that? So having it as a memoir at first made it seem like it was a singular issue, right? That it was this one admittedly white Jewish male from Manhattan who went through a program, three programs, and then came out and, like you said, ended up on a really good path into adulthood. But that was just not the reality of these programs. And I had to revisit the programs to really understand that. And and it was a bigger story than myself, and it, and it had nothing to do with me other than having gone through it very briefly. But the, the amount of people that these programs had sent to their own damnation was astronomical. And it was terrifying to really dig into it and learn that it was destroying people's lives way into their adulthood, arrested development, uh, deaths of despair. It was extraordinarily sad. And to your point about this narrative of me becoming a successful journalist, you know, a lot of the stories I choose to write are inherently about striving to put the past behind you and learn from it rather than be relegated to it. And when I first wrote about it for the Times, I was contacted by dozens of parents who said, 
which programs did you go to? Because you're a journalist at the New York Times, and I want to make sure that it's going to work out just the same for my kids. And I said, you know, this was just a personal experience. This is just my take on things. I really can't make any recommendations. I'm not a therapist or, or any sort of child advocate or anything like that, just a writer and a journalist. And when I revisited that story and started writing more thoroughly on the problems within these programs, I think it was sort of an about face that took a lot of people by surprise because I hadn't yet considered how it was affecting other people. And now that's come to light with the book. And what were some of the problems that you uncovered in these interviews that maybe you hadn't seen yourself? The baseline issue is that parents needed to take a really honest, long look at the family structure in which these children were being raised and to notice that many of the issues with the children derive from issues at home. And time and again, I interviewed, you know, more than 100 former clients, psychologists, child care advocates, therapists from the programs, counselors from the programs to really understand the experience of as many people as I could. And time and again, it was always the same story. I had a troubled family life. I would come home and I was miserable. My mother would yell at me. My father would hit me. My uncle would rape me. There was sexual abuse at home. There was no food at home. There was many kids were in foster care. And at some point, somehow, in the thinking of the parents, it was an issue with the kids, right? And this is the major fallacy here, and sent them off to be corrected. And throughout the course of this correction period, however long it lasted, some for only three months, some for two years, it's a focus on the child who then returns home to the same environment. And we expect something to have changed when they're inherently back to where they began. And that was the most surprising thing that all the stories had the same exact narrative of this troubled home life um, that then turned into a troubled childhood. Now, I chose the four characters of the book based on all those interviews to show that trajectory of wilderness programs, it's an ex experiential wilderness program, so then more of a therapeutic boarding school, so and then a uh, residential lockdown facility. So there's an increase in sort of severity of the programs. And at each one, you were severed contact with your parents, you were severed contact with your friends, and told to change. And the parents were never really the focus of the things. Now, the crux here is that when I finally got out of treatment and really started a new relationship with my father that today is really wonderful and I consider him my best friend. He said to me that a lot of the therapists told me your mother was the one who really needed therapy and that it wasn't necessarily all on you. And I said, how could you have let me go through this process when you knew that it was an issue at home? And, you know, he was at a loss for words. And I think so am I today, because as a parent, I don't know how I would react, but I would assume that if someone handed me a golden key and said, look, turn this and your kid will turn out great, I would do it too. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. I felt like I have read different accounts of parents who are at the end of their rope and try to figure out what to do about kids that are troubled in various ways, but I haven't read these accounts of what it's like to be the kid and then to be picked up and moved into these programs where the type of behavior modification from what you wrote, it seems like it's all over the map and it's not based a lot of it on training or science or anything other than sort of like some relatively untrained young teachers who are brought in to kind of execute a vision that ultimately is profitable for the school. So were there things that when you went through the programs, you didn't think of them as causing you trauma or being abusive to you that then when you interviewed people, you realized they either were for you or you saw that they were for others? That was the entirety of my experience in reporting this book. I had been indoctrinated into a cult, more or less. Um, many people felt like it wasn't that bad, or I wasn't really abused, I mean physically, so therefore, if there are no scars, how could there have been, you know, abuse? But to hear other people articulate the ways in which you're abused, the way that you are meant to sit down and write your life story dozens of times and edited until you are giving a sort of tale that fits this narrative of a troubled youth, you become troubled in so doing. And that is in a way brainwashing to its most simple form. Um, so those stories ended up really helping me understand that it wasn't just this program that, you know, was a weird thing in my past, but had led to a lot of arrested development for me, a lot of social issues for me. One example is to be taken away from high school, which to me is not about academics. It's about socializing, learning how to care for other people, how to be considerate, how to mm -hmm. be articulate and voice your opinion and emotions. Taking that away and living with people who are ostensibly troubled teens, who we're told are all troubled, and then to return to that environment and try to associate with people who are not troubled teens is disorienting. And you have no way to connect with those people and you are distanced from those people and you feel worse and are made to feel worthless and then are asked to just be normal. And that was something that I've struggled with for many years and still struggle with. Yeah. One of the most poignant parts was just the way in which some of these programs seem to specialize in kind of tearing people down and then building them back up, which, you know, certain cults take that same approach, but were they were no good at the building up part. Like, it was pretty much the tearing up part and then sending you home. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm like at these programs striving to achieve Mustang level, you know, where I can maybe listen to an MP3 player. That was my goal in life was to be good enough so I could listen to freaking music. It's crazy. So when you were going through the schools and then sort of put back into to high school, like where in this time period did you get interested in writing and journalism? Were you a person who, who was keeping journals yourself and documenting this experience or where did that sort of arise? I had been writing short stories uh, for a really long time. My father said that he would take me to conferences. He's an attorney and he would lecture and I would sit outside the conference room reading Stephen Ambrose and, you know, relishing in World War II narratives and trying to recreate those in notebooks. And I took that into the programs and I had a marble notebook. We were meant to keep one for sort of a daily journal. Uh, we'd have to write a note to uh, our counselors each night in order to get fed. Uh, and if we didn't write it well enough or long enough, we wouldn't get dinner. 
And then I requested another journal, which I kept for my own personal use. And I would, I wouldn't say document my time there because I wasn't, I didn't know anything about journalism. I was just writing my interior thoughts and trying to escape in any way I could. And so those ended up helping me a lot later when I revisited this as a book project for Troubled and would go through and really feel what it was like to be a teenager in these programs. And it devastated me to see how lost and terrified I was. Because like we said earlier, I was sort of looking back and thinking it didn't really affect me. But you can clearly see a, a very worried, scared child, or just a baby, really, in uh, these books. And the most damning thing is that eventually at the second program, which I would come to run away from and then get kicked out of and sent to a worse program, at that program, the journal was taken from me, the personal journal was taken from me and used against me in therapy sessions. And they would mm. go through my internal thoughts and, and berate me for feeling one way or another or really psychoanalyzing something that I wrote, you know, as a missive. And then making me feel as though I should be a criminal for trying to work through my thoughts on paper rather than in a, a therapy group where people yell at you. It's like anti-therapy. It's the antithesis of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the people you sort of come to the end of the book and I won't, you know, spoil the book, but I'm interested in your sort of relationship with the main subjects of the book kind of going forward. Cause part of it is that some people didn't come out of it and become successful. Some people got trapped in those struggles. And, you know, obviously you've come and interviewed them and that's potentially been a cathartic experience for them. But then what happens to that connection now that the book is complete? And what's your sort of relationship with those subjects? That's a tough one. I don't know what I have in my power and in my tool chest to help anyone other than these words. And they don't always seem to work. People don't always seem to listen. And as you know, trying to keep up with sources from different stories over, you know, a decades long career is this, it's impossible. And yeah. um, I also worry about checking in on people sort of absently and, and saying, how you doing? I haven't talked to you in six months. It seems sort of inconsiderate and in a way disparaging to say, oh, I just sort of randomly thought about you. So how about I check in on you? Hope you're okay. It's really more about me than them at that point. So I've tried to maintain contact with them. You know, I don't think it really spoils the book to say that some of them ended up falling out of contact. You know, other people ended up relapsing. I think really, in fact, this is the point of the book is that most of the people who I mentioned are, are in terrible situations and remain in terrible situations. And that doesn't seem likely to change. You've written about how you yourself in a period after that continued to struggle through college in Savannah and you've written about an attempted suicide. And that writing, those essays, you know, I've read a couple in Hazlitt and other places, it was writing those, is that a way for you to process those events? I don't know if I rationalized it. It just sort of felt like I needed to speak and didn't know what to say. And those were what came to mind. Um, mm -hmm. Desperately needing to speak and be heard. But I never really connected it to the programs. You see, that was one of the brilliant thing or is the brilliant thing about the programs is that if one were to graduate from a program and leave it and maintain a path of insolence and disruptive tendencies, you're still just a troubled teen, right? right? It has nothing to do with the program. You're just continuing on the same path. It has nothing to do with your experience of the program. You were damned from the start, so good luck, right? And so I never made that connection um, until now when I started working on Troubled. And back then, those essays just seemed to be the only thing that I knew. You know, you write what you know. Who are you? Well, you're a bad person. You've been a terrible person to people and yourself. You've been destructive. And so what can you write about? You know about your attempted suicide attempt, you know about violence and, and drugs. And so I guess, ergo, that's who I'm going to be, right? So there was still that latent responsibility for something that I wasn't really any longer. I was already at the times then, but still very much self-destructive. And that just carried on for many more years until, I don't know, something clicked. Well, I'm interested in that moment. But first, what sort of turned the corner for you just in terms of career-wise? Like, what is it that got you on the path to be a journalist? 
In college, I had published my first story in the local paper about Occupy Wall Street, and it was a front page story, and I was hooked instantly about going out there, writing something, having it published the next day, and we heard the story all the time from writers, and it was addictive. But I also started to find that when it came to deadlines or assignments, I was choosing those over drinking or going out and partying or hanging out with friends. And as I got older, I felt like that was the saving grace, was my interest and my love of something to devote my time to that superseded any other sort of deviance. And I never really considered doing anything else other than writing. And so eventually I kept publishing and those assignments kept coming and I was more and more addicted to chasing that that next assignment, that next story, that next essay, that that replaced the other addiction. What was the moment that you mentioned just a moment ago where you where you sort of like fully, you know, clicked over into I guess sobriety maybe is what you were referencing, but what, what changed for you? So you, you still, things were still complicated, but you were a journalist already, but then what changed for you? It feels like it was overnight, man. Like just suddenly I woke up one day and said, man, I'm not doing enough. Or, you know, I got to get things together. I'm living in a basement with two windows in Sunnyside, Queens and working at the times, but I'm not really feeling like I'm doing much, like I just barely scraping by, you know, at a low level position at the times, you know, not doing any of these stories that we've been talking about now. And there's evidence to support the suggestion that by the age of 25, which is around the time that this happened for me, the brain suddenly matures, like out of nowhere. And you begin to focus on the longevity of your life rather than the immediate. And I always believed that I would die next day. 18, 19, 20, I'm probably going to die tomorrow, probably going to something stupid going to happen. It's no big deal. And then all of a sudden 25 came and I'm thinking, all right, well, I'm still here. Um, there's things I'd like to accomplish. I'm seeing other people do incredible work, incredible journalism, incredible, beautiful writing and said, I want that. I'm going to pursue that with more force than I have in the past and carry on with that. And that's, I think, a real sticking point with how these programs are being regulated or attempting to be regulated now is, you know, you can't relegate a minor to the death penalty because they don't know any better, because they just haven't grown yet. And the science says that they haven't even developed a brain that is capable of reckoning with consequences. Mm -hmm. So that has a lot to do with these programs where you're trying to change someone so early on and force them into this adulthood that might not come for another decade, ostensibly, and failing to do so and then blaming it on, on the kid when it's perhaps the plasticity of the brain hasn't yet developed to the point where they can foresee themselves in 10 years and understand those consequences. Though, I might add, I would have loved to have that focus at 15 and decide like, oh, I'm going to go to Harvard and I'm going to then, you know, do a master's at Yale and then join the New Yorker staff. That would have been a lot a lot easier and probably more appreciated than what I had to do. I mean, it raises a question, like how much of those experiences have informed your your reporting? You know, what do you think the role of all of those experiences has played in your ability to, you know, show up and interview someone about anything? I think it's shaped my curiosity in a way that was limited to stories that were within my wheelhouse or tangentially related to my wheelhouse and knowing that I had certain insight into maybe trauma, maybe PTSD, maybe some, you know, networks of fallen children, maybe ideas about ISIS fighters who I empathized with because they were lost children who found a group of people that believed in them, who fostered their radicalism, right, radicalized them, but made them feel a part of something bigger than themselves. I empathize with that and felt like that's a major issue among children in the States is, you know, we have unprecedented depression, unprecedented anxiety among our youth. And the children are told to just sort of deal with it, to just put the phone away and you'll be okay. When we have people who are 
lone wolf shooters who are doing all these crazy outspoken things because they're not being listened to. And I don't think it's too far-fetched from what I had experienced, you know, that loneliness, that worthlessness, that feeling of oppression, of wanting to do something but not knowing what. And then sometimes the wrong door opens for a lot of people. And that door could be the alt-right, that door could be QAnon, that door could be ISIS. And they step into it because it's the only welcoming light there. So you turn this corner and you sort of said, all right, I want to do more. I'm living in the basement, Sunnyside, Queens, but I'm working for the Times. I mean, you had a, you said it was a low-level job, but did you have a beat? You published a very wide range of stories for the New York Times when I looked back at your, your collection. I was what was referred to as a news assistant, which maybe 40 years ago would have been called a clerk. So I had a lot of daily tasks that involved sort of clerical business. Um, and I, all those stories that you saw me write were during my time on the rewrite desk when I was filling in for reporters there or waking up very early in the morning and getting called from the metro desk and running legs on a story of a dog being shot or, or what have you, a march that was happening. And I would fill in as a sort of backfill reporter. So how did you go from there to going to report, you know, in Iraq, in along the Syrian border? Like, what caused you to make that big of a leap? You know, I go, I always give credit to my wife. Um, she's a literary translator, also a writer. And she had spent time in Congo in her youth working with uh, teenage soldiers. And I had talked to her a lot about the experience and always said that I wanted to sort of do war correspondence. I was trying to think of something that aligned with my own comfort with risk. And I felt like that was something I wanted to do and something that was possible if I um, just managed to get the plane ticket. So I reached out to the atavist and the atavist was very generous in letting me take on a story of that breath, sort of passing the ball to me and letting me run with it. Sayward, who uh, you've also had on the podcast and is an incredible, incredible editor and a huge support during the time of writing that story, you know, said, go do it, go get this story and we're going to work on it and, and, and bring it back. And I went there because I had these questions about my youth and, and the inroad to this was ISIS at the time. And I had a question of whether or not because you make a wrong decision, are you damned for life? Do you deserve to be slated as a terrible person because you made one wrong decision? Or is the life that led up to that wrong decision worthy of investigating? And I mean, that could lead you in, in a lot of directions, uh, that particular question. I guess what at the time made you think uh, that you had the skills to show up and, and get that story? I didn't. I didn't at all. I was certain that if I couldn't do it, then that would be it. That I would go back and get a mechanical engineering BS and then just work at a, in front of a CAD program for the rest of my life. I didn't think I could do any of that. I mean, the worthlessness from these programs lives with me today. I've spent all day nervous about talking about my work because I don't feel like I know what I'm talking about. You know, so even trying to take a risk on myself has been a step in the right direction for me. And, you know, coming back with such a story that was well-received was incredibly earth-shattering for me. It really pulled me out of this place in my youth where I felt like I couldn't do anything. Like I was relegated to just being the quiet kid in the room, relegated to just sort of doing the softball stories and, and running legs for the times and being happy with the contributor line. And then I came back from Mosul and the story did pretty well and injected this shot of adrenaline into my career. I hopped on a plane the next day and started reporting all of these stories out of these kids and said, if I could take a risk on myself and, and sell the story out of Iraq, then hell, why can't I do it in the States? And and then you also went back to Iraq and Syria. You know, you wrote pieces for Wired and other places. Did you have any kind of like model for your approach to writing those stories? You know, I one interesting thing I found in your work is that, you know, there's some first person and there's a bit of remove in it sometimes. You write about what's happening. You write about your own role in it. You write about your fixer, your relationship. You write about being afraid in certain circumstances. And I, I was curious if you had a model for how you approach that or if that's sort of your natural approach to reportage. When I report, I keep two journals. So again, we're seeing some carryover from these programs. I keep my reporting notebook, which is sort of an almanac of dates, times, names, quotes, uh, phone numbers. And then I have my 
personal notebook, which has all my fears and anxieties. And, and, and it invariably makes its way into the reporting just because I feel like the only thing that I can do to differentiate from some of the big hitters out there, you know, I'm thinking of Luke Mogelson, Ben Taub, these people that I've been reading and totally admiring Mae Young, who was also on the podcast, reading them and thinking, Jesus Christ, like, could I ever write a reportage piece like this? Probably not, but I feel like I'm experiencing something different internally. And that's how sometimes it makes it into the reportage, which is sort of an amalgamation of those two journals, of those two experiences, the, the internal and the external, which isn't to say I haven't done, you know, straight reportage. It's just people seem to ask me to do more personal stuff anyway. My, and again, my wife uh, always encourages me to write more personal pieces. I'm not quite really? sure why. She, I think she knows that I like doing it. And then as, as I'm oscillating between self-promotion and self-loathing, a lot of the publications ahead of Publishing Troubled have been like, yeah, this, this story that you're suggesting and pitching is really great, but why don't you tell your story? And I'm like, Jesus, here we go again. Like, you know, more yeah. of the wrangling with my own personal narrative. <laughs> it makes sense though. It makes sense. But just back to the foreign reporting, has your desire to report, you know, adjacent to conflict or your, or your risk tolerance has it changed since you had kids, have family? <laughs> um, I don't want to jinx the next book that I feel like I have lined up. And I won't talk about it because it hasn't been lined up yet, but it would bring me back to the Middle East. And while I have reservations about what I'd lose or leave at home, as does my wife, were something to go south, is it for a better cause? Is that lens that I turned outward doing something important? And I think that that usually outweighs the fear that I have for myself, which isn't to say that I take unnecessary risks, which isn't to say that just because I have a high risk tolerance doesn't mean that I'm being reckless. It just means that I'm more comfortable in those situations of anxiety and fear. And if that's my only contribution to uh, the world, then I can't shy away from it. Um, I don't think of myself as important, but I think of my work as important. And if I could just do unbyline stories, I would happily oblige. <laughs> <laughs> really? You would, you would take the name off of it? Yeah, I just, it's socially grotesque. I think that, you know, I, if my name weren't on the pieces, I wouldn't have to check Twitter to see if people are tweeting about it. So I, I would much rather prefer to be anonymous, you know, like the good old days when Reuters and the Times would send people into these conflict zones and they would come out with by an employee of the New York Times. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, what about from as like a career financial sustainability perspective? Foreign reporting is just the hardest thing for me to figure out in terms of the appetite for that and finding the right exact story that you can get paid enough for and stringing enough together. So how, how do you approach that? I've only recently started shifting to doing stories that are financially viable. The Atavis story, uh, Harper story that I worked on that never was published, and a few others were cash advances on my credit cards. And by some greater will, I either received awards or grants following the publishing of the stories that then eventually covered what I had spent in the short term. As far as writing these stories go, I mean, you, you write for Wired, so you know that Conde Nast pays pretty well, as does The New Yorker. And those are some sustainable models, but a lot of the web pieces is just impossible to justify going overseas and writing these things, which is one of the reasons why I moved here to Italy to sort of lessen those expenses. But most of my time now is spent less on the writing and the interviewing and more on the grant applications, more on the fellowship applications. You know, I was just um, awarded an Alicia Patterson Foundation fellowship for the next six months. And thank God my 2021 started out that way, because if not, I, I wouldn't be able to do this next book I'm working on. I, and I don't really know where the model of this is going. I mean, are we to anticipate, you know, maybe some stabilized payouts of these print and web pieces? Are we anticipating that maybe there will be a, a bigger freelance budget in the future? Or are we all going to just hope that we can get grants and fellowships to then use toward assignments? For me, 
I have thrown everything that I've gotten from the book from fellowships into investment properties and now <laughs> collect rental income. Really? And that is how I can. Yes. I think, you know, I talk about this with a lot of my students at Catapult and like I have the ability now to really choose what I want to do and say, you know, you're going to pay me 2,500 for an essay, 3000 for a reported piece. I can do it because it's a story I want to do and I have the time to do it and I don't have to worry about, um, you know, making a mortgage um, or making sure that the lights stay on. But I forget who it was. There was an author. She had written about her time in the Middle East and said that she's just going to do books now. There's no way to do magazine pieces at a serious competitive level without driving yourself into debt. And maybe there are some people who have found a way to do that, but I, I had to hedge my bets and, and call in. <laughs> calling some help i think you're the you might be the first person on the show to have helped fund their journalism by being a landlord i mean scott anderson i remember talked about the bar like that was his right his you know very similar answer was that gives me enough money to do the stories that i want to do i mean sebastian younger had the bar right and i'm not saying that was his main source of income oh same oh, okay well there you go i mean that's the kind of thing that you have to maybe sometimes get creative about and i was very curious to learn how people make their money and i and i always ask writers like how do you make money and one new yorker writer said what do you mean i, I just publish two stories a year and that's all i need to do <laughs> and it's very different depending on what level you're, you're working on from what i've told but yeah i mean how could you not supplement your income at this point with something else i mean you're getting paid 350 for a web article i mean i can't live on 20 30 grand a year it's uh, i got two kids and uh you know a mortgage <laughs> yeah yeah um so in the book there's a section where you write, you're talking about the sort of typical graduates and, and looking back at the graduates of these programs or clients of these programs is maybe a better term. And you say, you write that many of us have become inured to our experiences at these programs as trauma victims often are. A typical successful graduate looks like me, someone who chanced into adulthood, not because of the programs, but after a later and even more traumatic period who's still struggling today. Every so often I was arrested. This is talking about your earlier life, never settling into my life until recently. Even now I'm still cautious. It feels like anything might send me back. How often do you experience that feeling? There's a part in the book where I mentioned meeting with a former client who says that they're waiting for a moment when the shoe will drop and they'll be kidnapped or taken back to a program or arrested for something or up shit's Creek without a paddle. And I feel that constantly. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I feel so comfortable going to Iraq and Syria is partly because I feel like something bad's going to happen to me anyway. So why not just embrace it? Um, not that I want something bad to happen to me. I'm not a glutton for punishment. But, you know, in Bulletproof S, I write about how I, you know, am fearful every night when I go to bed of, about waking up to two men leaning over my bed and saying it's time to go or you know, th thinking that I've wronged someone in a way that has severely damaged their life and that it's all my responsibility because I said something, one thing wrong. I mean, just like crazy outlandish things that are hinged on this notion of worthlessness. And I live with that anxiety and fear and depression all the time. And, and some days it's better than others. Uh, you know, I basically stayed in bed all day in large part because I just had a terrible roiling gut feeling. And when I can't get out of bed to do work, it's a bad day. Sometimes I manage, sometimes I don't, but it sticks with me. And I never attributed this all to the programs until I started writing Troubled. Um, I just attributed it to like some chemical imbalance in my body, but now I, I sort of associate it with a, a lost childhood. And recognizing that and writing about it and seeing it in other people, has that changed it for you? Like you write, it feels like anything might send me back. And I'm wondering if that feeling is lessened or, or greater almost after reporting on everyone else's experiences and, and sort of reliving what you went through in those programs. I think it's only heightened it. And especially this understanding that I'm not going to die or appreciating that I could die imminently has led me to do a, a small book last year, a big book this year, you know, lined up the next book contract, trying to sell this, you know, maybe as a movie, hoping it gets picked up as a movie or a podcast and figuring out this fellowship for the next year and what stories I'm going to do now, because I'm just so desperately trying to get everything done. 
you know, before whatever end. And the more I can do, the better I'll feel about what I've left for um, my son and my daughter. Just, you know, maybe they won't meet me when they're 10. Maybe they won't meet me when they're 15. Maybe that'll be it. And then all I'll have is this work. And I hope that that would be then, you know, the lasting impression of their father, not for anyone else, but just for them. So it's driven me to just do more consistently. So the fear drives that, that need to fulfill some void that I know is just continually open. When I was at a residency writing this book, someone said, I'm basically Faustus, like making a deal with some unknown devil in the hopes of achieving something or reaching some point, like infinitesimal point of solitude or, or achievement, when I'm just, you know, continually filling that gaping hole that was opened by these programs in my early childhood that I still can't seem to quelch. And so would you trade, I guess, the energy and drive that it gives you for having it, that hole be closed up? Some days. Some days I, I would. I, you know, I think about the achievements of people who, and I don't know the, the struggles of everyone, you know, I, people are dealing with things that I could never possibly imagine. But on the exterior, the optics of some people who took that more straight and narrow seem really good to me. You know, it seems like that's what I'm striving for, but could never get. And those days when I wish I could trade it in are really tough days. But the days when I leverage that experience to further my writing, to further my reporting, to care better for my family, those are, those are the days that are innumerably better. Well, I'm hoping that we can look forward to you talking after your fifth book or tenth book about how you're, you're happily completing it and not feeling that. But I appreciate you talking about it because I think a lot of people might connect with that. So thanks for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Ken Rosen for coming on the show. Ken's book is called Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. Check it out. It's really, really well reported and written. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to them. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and to our intern, Susan Peterson. And as always, thanks to our sponsor, MailChimp, for making the show possible. We will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. 